keep your eyes closed for a minute. And I want you to picture your favorite food, whatever it is. It could be a dessert or it can be a big juicy steak. Just for a moment, picture the absolute most delicious taste. All right, now in your imagination, go ahead and take a bite of that thing and savor it. Don't just hawk it down. Savor the taste of it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. While you're tasting that in your imagination, would you sing with me? Praise God from whom... Amen and amen, Jesus, you are so good. It is so sweet to slow down and taste and see your goodness. So we sing and pray in your precious name. Amen. Good morning again, everybody. My name is DJ. I'm the church pastor here at Parker Ford, if you're visiting. It's so good to have you with us. Um, And I feel way better than I did at this time last week. I was just sitting in bed with a box of... Uh, tissues next to me. I had called uh, Dave Willauer on Saturday afternoon and said, I'm calling in to back up. And uh, Dave was very gracious and stepped in. I I listened to uh, the sermon and that morning while I was praying for, for you all and I was praying for Dave, I just really had the sense from the spirit that whatever he was gonna say was gonna be more timely than what I had to bring. Uh, that morning, and as I was listening to it, I just really had that sense that it was it was a gift uh, from the Lord. Uh, you know, not being sick, but <laughs> but the way that He orchestrated that. So, if you weren't here for that, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen uh, to that teaching Dave taught on um, us being living stones, being built together into the church. And he had this great analogy of his son collecting uh, rocks. Do you remember that uh, when he was talking about that last week and how? how each one of us just on our own is just a stone. Um, And it's only in us being fitted together that there's actually life infused into it, spiritual life and strength. It was really good. So uh, again, I'd encourage you to go back. And Dave, thank you very much uh, for filling in. So this morning, we're going to jump back in uh, to this series that we're starting, uh, which we're calling Living in His Story. Everybody say, Living in His Story. You are living, if you are in Christ, you are living in the story of Christ. And his story is actually being told through your life. Just like the lives of the saints that we read about in scriptures, Jesus is telling his story through your life. Which is really uh, one of the driving points that I want to bring home throughout this whole series. As we look at the life of Christ... And then to look at our life and to see how they're meant to fit together so that his his story continues to be proclaimed in our story. Amen? Amen. So when you go to work tomorrow, 
whose story is being told? His story. When you go to school tomorrow, whose story is being told? His story. The more that we saturate ourselves, the more that we soak ourselves in the story of Christ, in many ways, the more freely his story flows in and through us. So this is uh, the overview of what we're doing. I won't read the whole thing, um, but God is the ultimate storyteller. He's a storyteller. Isn't that awesome to have a God who's a storyteller? Tells the best stories. God has spoken. He speaks the story of the very cosmos into being. He is the divine storyteller who is weaving every individual story into the ultimate story, the story of his son. He is weaving your story into his and my story and our story. In Christ, your story has been woven into the fabric of his story. Your story is no longer your own. I know the temptation is to take possession of it. The temptation is always to say, this is my story. This is my life. In many ways, this is connected to the, the temptation of Adam and Eve. Did God really say, separate yourselves from that story, Adam and Eve. Make your own story. Did God really say that? We continue to experience this temptation every day to make the story our own story. But it belongs to Christ. In Christ, like the lives of those we read about in the scripture, our lives are part of the grander, all-encompassing story of God. And I don't know about you, but to me, this gives me so much joy and peace. Because outside of my story being woven into Christ's story, when I think about the grand scheme of 8 billion people on earth and all of human history, my story is pretty little. <laughs> And can seem pretty insignificant. And the things I'm a part of can seem insignificant. But when I remember that my story is his story being told in my life, there's a, a sacredness and a value. And so when I'm spending time with my children, it's not just get on to the next thing. It's this is the story of Jesus. And this is the way it's playing out in this moment with my child or whatever it is that we're doing. There's a sacredness to our life. Everything that we do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of the Lord. Because it's his story. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? All right. So it's the story of his son, Jesus Christ, that is being told in our daily lives. Today what I want to do is two things. I'm going to give, in part one of this sermon, I'm going to give a hermeneutics lesson. Hermeneutics is a fancy way of saying how we study the Bible. Everybody, it's a fun word to say. So everybody say hermeneutics. We're going to do a hermeneutics lesson. I do this a couple times a year. So some of these concepts you'll be familiar with, I've talked about before. Um, but we need to revisit all the time. How are we reading and studying the scriptures? So part one is going to be how are we reading and studying the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. And then part two is we're going to look at the first, hang with me, 12 chapters of Genesis, <laughs> and we're going to take a 10,000-foot view. Um, so today, we're not going to be in the weeds as much as we're going to be surveying uh, some of the major stories from Genesis 1 to 12. We, we already covered the three first three chapters in recent weeks, so really from chapter 4 to 12, and we're going to look at the story of Jesus in the book of Genesis. How did these stories point us to Jesus, or some ways that they do? 
All right, so when we think about the scriptures, and I ask you the question, what are the scriptures? I'm sure there are many things that come to mind. What do they entail? What do they include? What do you think of when you hear the word Bible? Or I can put another word, a modifier, in front of it, the scriber, and then it becomes even heavier in a way, the Holy Bible. What do you think of? If, if you're like 99.999% of people, not including the 0.00001% who are lying, then often when you read the scriptures, it can be confusing <laughs> and difficult, particularly in the Old Testament. Even the greatest theologians and thinkers uh, in the world, New Testament and Old Testament scholars, will tell you readily that this is a difficult, difficult book to understand. Anyone, you, you know the line from The Princess Bride, anyone who says otherwise is selling something? That pretty much applies to this. If you find someone who says that they understand the scriptures, everything about it, and they know all the secrets of the scriptures, they're selling something. Um, so there's a mystery and a depth to it. The scriptures are incredibly rich and dense and often difficult and sometimes confusing. They're a collection of ancient texts written in different cultures thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, by over 40 authors composed over 1,500 years, addressed to churches and people different than us and written in languages we don't speak. So it should be easy, right? <laughs> so I'm saying, no, there's, there's uh, difficulty. But as difficult as it can be uh, to understand, it is so worth it. It is so worth spending our lives diving into the mysteries and studying and learning and wrestling through the scriptures. Part of the complexity, and this is just in the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew scriptures, there's all of these different types of literature. Some of the main categories uh, within the Hebrew scriptures are narratives, law, poetry, prophecy, and wisdom literature. But under all of those major headings, you can break them up into all sorts of smaller categories within them. So it's not just that there's one kind of narrative. There's all sorts of different kinds of narratives that are in the Hebrew scriptures. There's reports. There's heroic narratives. There's prophet stories. There's comedies. Do you know there's comedies? Uh, that are included in the narratives, which is pretty cool and funny. Uh, there's farewell speeches, there's narrative songs, and that's just to name a few. There's all sorts of different types of narratives. And uh, the laws. Who here can't wait to wake up in the morning and read the laws of Leviticus? Sometimes I feel excited about reading it. Uh, sometimes it's really hard. There's all different types of laws. It's not like there's one kind of law. There's causistic laws, there's unconditional laws, there's legal series, there's legal instruction, and on and on. There's laws about the temple and tabernacle, what to eat, what to wear, who to associate with, how to spend your time, and so on and so forth. Poetry. Well, we know the Psalms, but there's all different kinds of Psalms. There's prayers, there's songs, there's liturgies, there's wisdom psalms, and on and on. Prophecies. There's not one kind of prophecy. There's many kinds of prophecies. There's disasters. There's salvation prophecies. There's woe speeches, which are a type of prophecy. Woe to you, Egypt. Woe to you. Hymns. There's dirges. There's prophecies against foreign nations. There's visions, prophetic visions, and on and on. Wisdom literature, there's lots of different types of wisdom literature. There's the Proverbs, the instructions, the reflections, there's example stories, there's disputation speeches, the entire book of Job, and on and on. Now, all of these different categories 
require different ways of reading and understanding. You can't bring one lens to the Hebrew scriptures, one set of glasses, and expect them to work for every single type of, of literature, because it doesn't. Sometimes they're speaking sarcastically. Sometimes they're speaking very, very straightforward. Sometimes something is meant to be obeyed in the moment. Some, sometimes something is for the future. Sometimes there's mystery on purpose. So all that to say, this is just emphasizing the point that when we're diving into the scriptures, there's so much wisdom and discernment and ongoing learning and humility. I'm not going to say this to look at your neighbor. Say this to yourself. There's so much humility required to approach the scriptures. We approach this with humility, not with arrogance. All right, so here's some important presuppositions uh, that leadership here, and I would certainly bring to the text. Presuppositions is just a way of saying this is my worldview. This is the way, this is uh, foundational beliefs that I have about the scriptures. So when you read the Bible, whether or not you know it, you have certain presuppositions that cause you to read it in a certain way. The fact that you were born, when you were born, where you were born, who you were born to, who you hang out with, what your education is, all of that forms the presuppositions, the, the context that you bring to the text. You read yourself into the Bible. You can't help it. That's what humans do in every situation. That's fine, but we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of the fact that we bring ourselves to whatever we read. There's no way to objectively read it without my story, because <laughs> my story is always there, a part of me. Presuppositions are not bad, but we need to be aware of them. And so here are some important presuppositions that we bring to the Hebrew Scriptures. They are divinely inspired revelation. So I believe as difficult and challenging as the Hebrew Scriptures can be, they are divinely inspired by God. Meaning that he worked in his people in such a way to tell his story uniquely and specifically through these stories in a way that leads us to God and relationship with God in a way that no other literature and no other writing and no other form of wisdom can. They are divinely, uniquely, and specially inspired revelation from God. So they're trustworthy on, on that level, and that is a beautiful thing. They're also authoritative and true. So whenever um, we believe in the Holy Spirit, and we believe that the Spirit is speaking, however, if there's ever a person who's like, I don't need the scriptures anymore, the Spirit of God speaks to me, what should happen there? Red flags. Oh, no. Because we are always building from this foundation, and the Spirit of God will not reveal anything that is not in alignment with what God has revealed about who he is and his character in this. And what almost always happens in a generation, 40, 50 years, when, when there's a movement that untethers itself from the scriptures, uh, there's, there's a movement into chaos and away from the structure and the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so these are not only divinely inspired revelation, but because it's divinely inspired revelation of God, it's authoritative and true, which means we build our life based on this. We order our lives. If we're living in such a way that we read in the scriptures is not according to God's word, then we submit 
to what the word says. Amen? You understand what I'm saying? Okay. So um, I'm going to use a fancy word because it's another fun word. Everybody say teleological. Teleological. Teleological is a really cool word. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary defines it like this, relating to or involving the explanation of phenomena in terms of the purpose they serve. So in other words, the scriptures at their core are about the question, why? Why? Why does God work the way he does? Why is he who he is? Why did he create in the way he did? So the presupposition I bring to the Hebrew scriptures and the text, the Old Testament, is it's a spiritual document, meaning that it's seeking to answer spiritual theological questions with a particularly a focus on why. So when I read Genesis, I'm asking the question, why? Why did you do this, God? Why? And I think he reveals himself uniquely as we wrestle through that question and through uh, those theological purposes. All right, the scriptures are both unified and diverse. Um, and this speaks to some of the things we've already talked about. Uh, diverse, they bring more than one human perspective. They bring as many authors as were a part of writing this. They bring different perspectives. So in one psalm, you can read about how a God is good and his loving kindness never fails. And in the next song, you can read about where are you, God? Why is there no justice? Why don't you act? Why don't you discipline the wicked? So there's not just one simple uh, message or one simple thing that's bite-sized in this. It's diverse, and, and it brings a wealth of wisdom from different perspectives, but all pointing to God. And I believe, okay, and this is important to hear based on all of this stuff that I already brought, the scriptures can be understood. Look at your neighbor and say, they can be understood. Encourage your neighbor. The scriptures can be understood. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and pursuit of God, submission to God, through exercising loving God with the fullness of who we are. What is the fullness of who we are loving God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we love God and seek to grow in each of these components of what makes us human, what makes us an image bearer of God, and as we submit to the Spirit, and as we submit to wisdom and of others, and as we read and study and learn from people, I believe that the scriptures and the message that God has for us, even in the really, really confusing, difficult stories, like when it seems like God says to destroy an entire people group, that can be really hard to read. It can be really hard when we read about children being sacrificed or read about um, wars and God striking people dead. Like, like poor, is it Uzzah who puts it, Uzziah? What, what, Uzzah who puts his hand on the ark uh, and God strikes. That's a hard story for me to read. Like, really, that's a hard story for me to read. And I... I trust the Lord, and I trust his goodness. But I also, I have this tension because I want to be human and I want to be real, but I also believe with all my heart that this is God's word and that it's trustworthy and true and that every story in here points to Jesus, which is the whole point of this whole hermeneutics lesson. Look at your neighbor and say, every story in the Bible points to Jesus. Go ahead. We'll get back to that in a minute. 
here are some things that the scriptures are not. The scriptures are not a modern science textbook. This has been a major error of particularly American fundamentalism in the last 50 years and a unique struggle that the American church has had. I'm not saying that the scriptures don't speak to all truth. They do. But when we read the Bible as a science book, we get in trouble. The Hebrew writers believed that the earth was flat. They believed that there was a canopy over the sky or a dome. They believed that the sun revolved around the earth and there are psalms and different writings that describe the earth working in this way. Now we know that the earth doesn't work that way and the cosmos doesn't work that way. Does that mean that the scriptures are not true? No. It means they were describing what they saw in the way that they understood it in their time and place and culture. So it's important that we don't read it as a science book. That's not its main purpose. Its main purpose is to reveal the nature and character of God and how to live with him and for him together. A modern history textbook, it's not that either. And I am a huge fan, as you know, I've said this many times, I'm a huge fan of history. I love history. But when we bring a modern sense of what it means to study history and we try to read that into the Bible, it can be difficult because ancient writers were not interested in the same details that modern readers expect to encounter when they read a modern historical work. Let me give you one example of this. If I were to stand up here today and give a sermon that was word for word copied from a sermon that I listened to on YouTube by a famous pastor and I didn't give them credit, what would that be called? Would that be okay? Would you be okay with that? Good. That happens all the time in the Bible. I mean, it happens all the time in the Bible where author after author, reader after reader, word for word plagiarizes those who came before them and don't give any credit to the, to the person before him. There's a different culture, a different understanding. And I'm not saying what they were doing was wrong. That was the culture. That was the time. That was the place. Uh, and, you know, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. So that's just one little example. But the Bible is neither a science textbook in the, in the sense of a modern school science textbook like you'd read in uh, public school, nor is it a modern history textbook. What are the scriptures? The scriptures are the story of God working and revealing himself. Especially I'm talking about the Hebrew scriptures among a specific group of people. All right, more on that. The Hebrew scriptures are, at their core, the telling of a story of a specific family of people, Israel, and their unique relationship to God as a kingdom of priests. All right, this is really important. Embedded throughout the Hebrew scriptures is God's heart for who? All peoples. Right away from the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures, embedded in this, we encounter it over and over again. God has a heart for the nations. Every tribe, every tongue. The Hebrew scriptures are focusing on God's heart breaking out for all the nations through one specific family. But his desire is to include all people. In his sovereignty, so God is sovereign. He, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, authoritative. If we talk about his character, God chose to call one man, Abram, who changes his name to what? Abraham. 
to make a nation for himself. Was he making a nation for himself just to sequester this nation off in the corner? What was the purpose of making this nation? To bless all peoples, to be a kingdom of priests that would lead the entire earth into worship, true worship of the living God. So embedded throughout the Hebrew scriptures is this story. All right, but this special group of people was chosen uh, to be a blessing to all peoples from all nations. The prophets, particularly when you get later in the history of Israel, leading up to the New Testament, many of the, the minor prophets that uh, were prophesying at the return of, from the exile, um, even in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you see that they are continually calling Israel back to this sacred vocation the calling of being a blessing to all the nations, not just to hoard wealth or hoard the goodness of God for themselves, but to let it flow freely to all the earth. Unfortunately, much of the story is about Israel's choice to be like the surrounding nations, rather than modeling an alternative kingdom and then inviting the surrounding nations into that way of life, which should remind you of the church, right? We are an alternative kingdom, an alternative people group that are supposed to live in such a way where we receive the blessing of Jesus Christ and give it back to God and then to our neighbors in such a way that it calls all people to Jesus Christ as King and Lord. All right, so Jesus, I believe this with all my heart, the the scriptures are a unified story that points to Jesus. So from Adam to Noah from Noah's sons to the Tower of Babel, and all through the story of Abraham and his sons, we see an increasingly difficult and complicated world. If you read, I read, uh, I wanted to do this this morning. I read it earlier in the week, but this morning I read from Genesis 1 to 12, and I was just noticing chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, it just gets more and more complicated and more and more difficult. And so we see the, the earth just, sort of descending into chaos. Each generation seems to descend further into this. From Adam to Abraham, Jesus was at work guiding and preserving and also preparing for himself a people. All right, this this phrase that I've used several times, a unified story, this comes from Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. I showed one of his videos, uh, Bible Project videos, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Tim Mackey is a a Bible scholar, and the Bible Project is an incredible gift to the church. Right now, they've made uh, introductory videos to every book of the Bible that explain the purpose of each book of the Bible. They also make theme videos on different themes throughout the scriptures. Phenomenal resource. Their tagline as a ministry is this phrase, and I think it's so good. The Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. Can we read that together? On the count of three. One, two, three. The Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. And that's why I took the first 15, 20 minutes of the sermon to talk about hermeneutics, because I want to show that as difficult and as complicated and beautiful and rich as the scriptures are, there's a thread that we in Christ follow from Genesis 1 all the way through the scriptures. This is telling a unified story that culminates and leads to Jesus. Amen? All right, that was a lot of information. Give yourselves a hand. Look at your neighbor and say, nice job. You hung with him. Good job. All right. Are you ready to survey 12 chapters of Genesis? Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look, what I want to teach you or or help uh, equip you 
is to be able to take this skill set, this tool set, into the scriptures. I want you to know how to read these scriptures in the Old Testament and see the story of Jesus. So what we're going to do is that we're going to look at some of the main stories from Genesis 1 to 12 very quickly, and I'm just going to show a way of doing this. Does that make sense? I'm going to show you a different way of seeing Jesus in these stories. This is something that you can do on your own, and I would encourage you to do with your families, with your spouses, with your children, to read the stories and ask the Lord, how is Jesus being revealed through this story? So the story of Adam and Eve should point us to who? Jesus. And we spent three weeks looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 recently and seeing how Jesus comes up in this over and over again. And we could have spent 12 weeks in Genesis 1 to 3 easily looking at the story of Jesus in the creation account. The story of Cain and Abel points us to Jesus. The genealogies. I know. I know, right? The genealogies. The endless lists of names that, if you're honest, you skipped over the last time you were reading. They point us to Jesus. Matthew, the gospel, the, the good news according to Matthew, the story of Jesus, what does it begin with? A genealogy. This genealogy, where does Matthew get it? From the Hebrew scriptures. Even the genealogies point us to Jesus. The story of Noah and the great flood leads us to Jesus. The story of the Tower of Babel is a signpost pointing to Jesus. The story of Abraham only finds fulfillment in the story of Christ. All right, so that's what we're going to do for a few minutes here. All right, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to be reading from the ESV up front. And I'm going to read quickly and just survey uh, some of the main points from this story. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, That's a a rated G way of saying that he was with her. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man uh, with the help of the Lord. Now, Cain sounds like the Hebrew word uh, forgotten. What a name. (laughs) The first child recorded, born in the scriptures, his name is gotten. You've been had. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was Abel. Dave Simon. (laughs) And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. Now there's lots of different theories as to why the Lord was happy with Abel's but displeased with Cain's. One thing that we can know is that it specifically says that Abel brought the best and the first fruits of his. And it seems like the implication is that Cain brought his leftovers to the Lord. He brought what was left. So Cain's very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, this is so profound, church, listen to this. <clears throat> These verses, seriously, this, this has the story of Jesus 
just written all over it. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is over you, but you must rule over it. What crouches? What crouches? What? Lion. Yeah, a predator. Sin is a predator crouching. You've seen planet Earth, right? And watch these crazy animals hunting in the wild. Sin is a crouching tiger ready to pounce. And it wants to overcome you. Who are humans given authority over in the creation account by God? Animals. And then I've said this before, but when they submit to sin, what do they become like? Animals. Humans become like animals. Here is the first example of this. Well, the most explicit example of this, Cain. Sin is crouching. It overcomes him. He becomes like the thing that he's supposed to have power over. And then what's he going to do next? He's going to kill his brother. He's going to be an animal. What did Jesus come? And sin was crouching at the door in the same way that it's crouched at every single human's door. But was he overcome by it? No. He overcame it. And in so doing, he now blesses and sanctifies and redeems and heals so that we are no longer animal-like, but we become truly and fully human like Jesus again. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? All right, this is another, like, we could do, like, six sermons on this. Jesus is the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. But unlike the story of the older brother who stays home and complains about his brother, Jesus is the older brother that left the wealth and majesty of his father's home and chased the son down into the pigsty, entered into the pits, joined us there in our humanity and brokenness and fallenness, and then leads us home to the father, not jealous of us, but leading the procession of rejoicing and celebration. So I ask you... (laughs) Who is his brother's keeper? Who is the ultimate brother's keeper? Jesus. Jesus, are you, a bro- are you your brother's keeper? We can see the point, this, this leading to Jesus in so many different ways. The Lord desires those who will worship in spirit and in truth. When I was reading this this week, I kept thinking about the woman at the well. Jesus desires those who will worship in spirit and truth. And this is what he's saying to Cain in many ways. Not just the leftovers, the fullness of who you are. God loves a cheerful giver. Sin is crouching at the door seeking to overcome us, but we must rule over it. And we are our brother's keeper. All right, next story. You ready? You having fun yet? All right, this is Noah. I'm not even going to read the scriptures. You know the story. The earth was descending into further and further sin. The Lord was grieved that he had made man because every inclination Inclination, inclination, I can't say the word this morning. Everything in our heart wanted nothing but sin, it says. And so he was grieved. But there was one man who was righteous in his family, Noah. How can we see the story of Jesus? This is one of those stories that's hard for me to read sometimes. Jay McCumber has often pointed this out. McCumber kids are here, what's up? Uh, Jay McCumber has often pointed it. I've heard him say this many times, if you know Jay. 
He's uh, been a mentor in my life, and he makes uh, the comment, and this is so true, what's the number one picture that's painted on church nurseries throughout American church? Noah's Ark. What would that have been like to be on Noah's Ark? What would have been floating in the water? Corpses. Lots and lots and lots of corpses. What would it have been like to be shut up in a boat in darkness and filth and the smells for months on end? This is not a nursery painting. This is a difficult story. And if we're honest, it's a hard story to understand and to read. So how can we see Jesus in it? Well, creation has fully rebelled against its creator. We see that God is all authoritative judge over all creation. In Psalm 29, it says, The Lord sits as king over the flood. The Lord reigns forever. And all in his temple cry out. Do you know what they cry out? According to Psalm 29? Glory. Glory. There's something about this story and seeing God reigning over it that's meant to lead us to proclaim the glory of God. We see that sin has completely disfigured the image of Christ, the image of God in us. We also see that God always has a remnant. This is really encouraging. There's never a time or a place where God's kingdom has not gone forward, where there is not a remnant of faithful believers. And this theme will come out throughout the scriptures as well, that idea. God is a God of covenant and a God of renewal. He makes promises to his people, relational promises that he keeps and he renews them. He saves through the waters of baptism. This is in uh, 1 Peter 3. Let me read it for you. Peter, reflecting on the story of the flood, says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So see how he's going to weave the story of Jesus into the story of the flood. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous and the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. So baptism is the same as this, he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God, a cry to God for a good, clean conscience through the resurrection made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And this last point, God will make all things new. This is the ultimate promise uh, found in Revelation. Behold, I make all things new, a new heavens, a new earth. And there's echoes of this already in this early story in Genesis. All right, for the sake of time, I'm going to um, skip the Tower of Babel, though there's some really interesting stuff I'd like to talk about with that. So we'll talk about it another time. And let's go to Genesis 12 and just look at the call of Abram and see Jesus. So use this tool, and with me as I read this, um, I want you to let your imagination and, and the Spirit of God speak, and 
listen, how is the story of Jesus being proclaimed or being pointed towards in the call of Abraham? Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How did this come to fruition? Jesus, how are all the nations of the earth ultimately blessed through Abraham? Through through Jesus, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and reign of Jesus Christ. This is how every nation on earth is blessed. Isn't that awesome? God was already in this early, 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 early story thousands of years ago planting the seed that would grow into the messianic promise, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. So Abraham went, he obeyed. Abram went and he obeyed as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. All right, don't get mad at me. If you're in this room and you're over 75 years old, raise your hand. Okay, look around. Keep your hands raised. Keep your hands raised. First of all, let's clap for him. That's awesome. What if the Lord called you today and said, your journey starts today? Your adventure starts today? Be encouraged. Be blessed. The story of Abraham, the blessing of the nations happened. Just barely started when he was that old. That is so cool. All right. So all of this, I know this was so much information, church. And it was so, uh, so much uh, knowledge and teaching and, and different things. But the whole point of this is this. In Christ, your story has been woven into the fabric of his story. And I want you to learn how to read the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I want you to learn how to read the story of Jesus in your own story. I want you to be able to reflect on your day and say, this is how Jesus worked. Even in your failures, even in the things, the sins that you struggle with, the temptations, this is how Jesus worked in my life today. I kept thinking as I was prepping for this, and this is where I'll close, so praise team, you can come up. I kept thinking about the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. You know that hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be? As I was thinking about these things. Listen to these words. I'm just going to read the verses. Paul, you can come up. We're going to go right into song. The words of this hymn say, take my life. Listen to this theme of, of our lives being the story of Jesus. Take my life and let it be consecrated. What does consecrated mean? Given, set apart, sacred. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of thy love. So let my hands do the things you want them to do, God. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only 
all for thee. Would you close your eyes and meditate on those words? I'm going to read them slowly, the last verse. And let this be your prayer this morning. Take my love, my God. I pour it out. At thy feet, its treasure store. Store my love at your feet. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Ever only all for thee. Father, we pray that this would truly be not only our prayer, but the way that we live. Take our hands, our lips, our hearts, both individually and collectively, who we are as a people and who we are individually. Everything belongs to you, and it's your story. Teach us how to see the story of your son in the ancient scriptures, and teach us how to see the story of your son in the stories that are being told in this room today. All for the glory and proclamation of the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we pray this in his all-authoritative name. Amen.